Our scripture reading this morning is Zechariah 1, 18 through 21. Just four verses. We began Zechariah's night visions last week. Um, we were in verses 7 through 17 of chapter 1. And we were shown a rider among myrtle trees in a ravine with three groups of horses at the ready. Verse 8 gives us that whole picture. And the vision showed us last week that in spite of appearances, God is on the move. The vision showed us that God will never relent on his promises. It showed us that all is well that ends well. And it showed us that he won't leave you behind. The assurance of all of that we see in the vision is the rider on the red horse, Jesus. The color red likely signifies the blood of his atoning sacrifice on the cross that brings us into God's presence. And and this shows us that God is present with and among his people even as we live our lives in the deep, in the storms. The second vision today is the shortest of the eight. Beginning at verse 18, this is God's holy and infallible word. This is Zechariah the prophet speaking. Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head, but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. What do we see today? And that is often the question in the Old Testament in general. Often, we say the New Testament tells and the Old Testament shows. And that's, of course, especially true with visions like these. We've got less pictures to deal with this morning compared to last week. Four horns, four craftsmen. What's going on? What do these verses show us? Night vision number two shows us first that the kingdom of darkness is mounting a global insurgency. An insurgency is a rebellion. The Hunger Games and Divergent books are about an insurgency. And of course, real life insurgencies happen around the world too. With the four horns and their activity, God is showing us a worldwide insurgency that spans all of history since the fall. The horn in the Bible is a picture of power. It's a picture of of pride, especially of power. Uh, The people in the ancient Near East had herd animals all around them. And the strongest animals of the herd had horns, and they dominated. 
Horns symbolized strength, and that's why horns were filled with oil to anoint Israel's kings. We're told Samuel anointed David when he was younger with oil from a horn. It's why we get stuff like this in Psalm 18. The Lord is my shield and the horn of my salvation. Ever wonder what in the world? The horn of my salvation, my stronghold. In verse 20, the interpreting angel explains that the horns scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And so these horns are clearly enemies of God's people. Think of the history of that time. Assyria, Babylon, Persia all come to mind. They overtook God's people, the Israelites. Egypt was also involved. So if you included Egypt, that would get you to four horns. But more likely, the number is referring to completeness or fullness, like the four winds of heaven in the Bible don't mean literally there are four winds. It's a picture of universality. And so while these horns could refer to specific enemies of God's people in Old Testament times, they're also a picture of all the enemies of God's people everywhere. And this makes sense because in books like Daniel and Revelation, the enemy of the people of God is described as an animal with horns. There's a ram in Daniel 8, a dragon with ten horns in Revelation 13. But there's a little bit more to the horns than that even. Did you know that there were horns on the altar in the Old Testament? Exactly four of them. And so for the people originally reading this vision, the altar might come to mind. In Exodus 27, God commands that an altar should be built for the people to worship. That was his plan for worship in Old Testament times. And on that altar, animals would be sacrificed to atone for the people's sin. And then God says about the altar, make a horn at each of the four corners. Take a look here. Do you see that on the, on the four corners? What a strange thing to put on the altar. Wouldn't you think? I didn't remember when I was studying this that, that God had said that, and there were always four horns there. But then we remember the horn was a symbol of power. And the altar was meant to show what? Well, the power of God's atonement, the power of God's salvation, that he is mighty to save, that he has the power to forgive sins. That's what the altar was about. And so four horns have always been central to Israel's worship in the Old Testament. Now, in the false worship of the pagan nations around them, Altars were also used. Ziggurats were commonly used towers that were temples that went up into the sky. They tried to reach the gods. There's a photo of a ziggurat too. These were all over. In fact, we think that the Tower of Babel was probably something like this. Like an ancient pagan temple 
to false gods. These false places of worship, these altars to false gods, also had four horns, signifying the power that they thought their false gods had. And so the four horns that scatter God's people are also a picture of defiance against God. And that's what happened at Babel. They were standing against God. And that's what happened with the foreign and false nations. The horns are scattering God's people. They're enemies of God's people. But it's also a picture of defiance against the living God. God created the world But there's an insurgency led by the fallen angel Satan to disrupt God's creation. God, from the beginning of time, has been gathering for himself his people, the church. But there are enemies of God that try to harm the flock. This is my father's world, we sang, and yet the enemies of God try to set up a shadow kingdom to harm his world. On a global scale, all throughout history, this insurgency has gone on. The insurgents try to destroy, they're trying to disrupt, they're trying to discourage. We see this very directly in persecution and in martyrdom. And we talked about that just a couple weeks ago in, in, in the Oregon shooting in that college asked the people who were Christians to stand, and he shot them. We think in history of the the terrible persecutions of Christians in the early church at the hands of the Roman Empire, but did you know that in the last century, in the 20th century, more people were killed for their faith in Jesus than in all the previous 19 centuries combined? Persecution is a real thing. In fact, if anything, it's increasing It continues today, but a recent U.S. State Department report says, and I think this is accurate, what's different about persecutions today is that while in the 20th century, by far most of the killings of Christians were through state-sponsored persecution, now it's more done through rebel and terrorist organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Are people who do this, whether we're thinking about the Al-Qaeda people and ISIS or this shooter in Oregon, are these just, I say young men, primarily young men, are these just young people, young men who grew up with no hope and a bad economy and nothing to do? I think there certainly are economic, social, political factors to all of this. But God's word reminds us there are spiritual factors at play too. All throughout history, people have wanted to thumb their nose at God, set up their own gods, be their own power. There is real evil in this world and that as a result, that, that ultimately comes from satanic forces. Did you know that ISIS is drawing people from Russia, from France, from all kinds of countries. And this isn't just a political group. These are people who hate God. They hate his people. It's their stated mission. They say they hate America because they see America as a 
as a whole, as a Christian nation. Their stated purpose is to defeat Christianity and Christians. This is their stated purpose. Let there be no doubt about it. Wherever they can, killing, beheading Christians, destroying whatever they can of what they consider to be Christian culture. They're gathering in the Middle East at the heart of where God's people originally started, where Jesus came into the world, and their mission at its core is defiance against God. The kingdom of darkness is mounting a global insurgency, and it's happening perhaps like never before in history. The four horns. You know, there's a reason that Satan is often depicted with horns. You see devils with horns at Halloween in cartoons. But, friends, the the horns are a picture of defiance against the living God. This is no joke. It's real. It's happening. And Satan and his forces will use whatever they can in their insurgency, whether it's individuals, nations, governments, terrorists, political figures, the legal and judicial system, even in our own country. You know, I think when we think of terrible evil, I, you know, I, I know as Christians we, we talk about it a lot. It's very much before us, but I don't think we can talk about it too much. I think of abortion. Did you know that that the number of lives taken through abortion in our country each year is more than the total number of military lives lost in all U.S. wars combined. Can you imagine that? How is this anything but evil? The very worst of the pagan nations around Israel sacrificed their children to their false gods. And in America, the terrible evil of taking life in the womb is legal. It happens all the time. It happens every day. A global insurgency fueled by the powers of darkness is the greatest threat to the world and the lives of people today, and it's always been that way. The second picture in the vision, and our second point along with it, though there is this insurgency, God is crafting an unbeatable defeat and destroy mission. The Lord shows Zechariah next, the four craftsmen. What's this about? I think this poor, you know, we're only in the second vision, and it's kind of overwhelming. Because he's got six more coming all in one night. You can see him asking his question, Lord, what are you showing me now? What's going on? And he asks God, what's this about? What are they coming to do? The uh, interpreting angel says they have come to terrify and throw down the horns. So God is crafting a mission against the insurgents. He will defeat those who seek to harm his people. He will destroy those who defy him. Evil will be scattered. One Bible scholar puts it this way, from God's limitless resources, he supplies forces competent to meet and match the enemy and to prevail. Enemies rise up against the church, but God raises up people to scatter those who have tried to scatter the flock of Jesus Christ. This has happened, it continues to happen in so many ways. In the very early church, the first couple hundred years, there were those who were attacking the deity of Jesus Christ. 
And God raised up a guy by the name of Athanasius to solidify the church in the true faith. This guy was reviled. He was banished like five or six times. He was physically attacked. But in the end, God used Athanasius and his, his keen mind to defeat a heresy called Arianism that denied Jesus was God. It would have brought the church back into paganism in the end. Other heresies came up. God brought Augustine to craft the response, keep the church together. The deterioration of the church in the Middle Ages, 1400s, was, was gutting the very heart of the faith, which is the authority of God's word. Salvation is a free gift of grace. And you know what? God raised up his craftsmen to write and to preach and to pastor and knock down what was threatening the church. And, and God's church went on founded on the Bible. Threats continue today from ISIS, certainly, persecution, evil laws and policies. But there are threats closer to home, too. There are threats even around or within the church. We, I praise God for our church, for all healthy churches in the country, but that's sadly not always the case. There are churches that where, where people bicker about things all the time that really aren't that important. There are churches where troublemakers have their way and say. There are churches where there are issues between pastor and church. And, you know, it makes sense. You can believe Satan will try to get a foothold wherever he can, especially in the church, which is, you know, the heart of God's mission. I want to be careful what I say here, um, but I really increasingly believe that that non-traditional type churches are a threat to the people of God. Research shows that in a lot of cases, people who leave a more traditional church with more straight-up worship and teaching in line with the history of the church, people who leave churches like this for one of the many non-traditional churches out there can become just a step away from leaving the faith altogether. And I don't say this lightly. I say it carefully. You know, like many of you, I have relatives who go to non-traditional churches. And I want to believe that God is using these churches. But, but how can moving to a place of lesser commitment to Jesus' people which is the case in non-traditional churches, lesser commitment result in anything good, whether for that person or for the next generation. I don't know. You know, the elders are tasked in the church, in this church, to discern these sort of things, to guard God's flock from enemies without, within, so I leave it to them. What our vision reveals is that the threats will be removed. There's no condition here. The vision just says that this is what's going to happen. God's mission will be accomplished. It's very interesting. Four craftsmen are going to do this. Why craftsmen? This was a general term uh, for carpenters, all those skilled people we saw on the video down in Mexico carpenters, maybe blacksmiths. 
These were skilled people, these craftsmen, but they were really, the word, they were regular people. Regular guys. They weren't rulers for sure. They weren't rich people. They weren't the upper crust of society. They weren't people with power. They were more humble people. And it's an indication, I think, a picture of how God's mission is accomplished and how it would ultimately be accomplished. The writer we talked about last week, Jesus, is described in Revelation as the one who comes to destroy the devil, the red dragon with ten horns in Revelation. He came and went about his mission in a very unconventional way for people who are leaders and in power. It wasn't by being a political leader. It wasn't by amassing an army. It wasn't this typical leader in the history of the world who is proud and egotistical. You know, speaking of that, did you hear that Vladimir Putin, Russia's leader, this past week turned 63, and having, I think, a few years ago picked up hockey, he scored a ridiculous seven goals in a game with ex-NHL players. It's another one of his pictures. Jimmy Fallon joked that when asked how the goalie felt about his performance, the goalie's answer was, alive. Putin, I don't know the guy, obviously, but from what you see, he exemplifies typical worldly leadership in the history of the world. Jesus was very different. He came with deeds of love and mercy. God crafted the plan of salvation, and Jesus accomplished it through humble service. By giving up the glories of heaven, he became man and he dwelt among us. He was arrested, he was beaten, though at any moment he could have unleashed legions of angels, the greatest army of the universe, to protect him. But he didn't do that. Instead, he allowed himself an excruciating death on the cross. There, to go make atonement for sin the one who those old altars of Israel were pointing to all along. And just when it seemed the enemy of God and his people had gained the upper hand through the Son of God's death, God raised Jesus from the dead, crushing the head of the serpent, defeating sin and the devil. Ephesians 1, at the end of that chapter, says this, Jesus is the one that God has placed above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be our head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. And so through the cross and resurrection, the tables were turned. The enemies of God's people lift their horns in defiance, but in Jesus, their horns will be brought low, even stomped on, while Jesus is exalted and lifted high. And he is the king over a lasting kingdom, and those shadow kingdoms will be destroyed once and for all into everlasting darkness. In contrast to those false altars and ziggurats raised up to heaven like Babel long ago, 
and in contrast to any other idea ever conceived by man to reach God, Jesus is the true stairway to heaven. He's the way, the truth, and the life, the Bible tells us. And not only that, but we are a part of all of this. Third this morning, the sweep of Scripture reveals that you and I, in Jesus, are God's craftsmen and craftswomen. After those verses in Ephesians 1, telling us about how God lifted up Jesus and gave him all authority and power, just after those verses, the beginning of Ephesians 2, they tell us how we can belong to this Jesus, how we can be sure that we're part of the real kingdom and not one of those false shadow kingdoms of men. How can we leave the insurgency that we're all born into, into in our sin And how can we instead be part of God's army? Ephesians 2 tells us it's by grace through faith. Jesus has done the work. There's no work for us to do. We can be part of the kingdom. You can be part of the kingdom. Anybody can be part of the kingdom by simply believing in Jesus. Then we're told in Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship created in Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Those who believe, that's you and me, all of us who profess the name of Jesus, we are God's craftsmen today. We're God's workmanship. We're his agents. We participate in the mission. It starts in our own hearts as we put off the values of the shadow kingdom with God's help, like like greed and lust and pride and selfish ambition, and as we clothe ourselves with compassion and mercy and love. You know, thankfully uh, for you and me, it doesn't take money or power or, or great education or intellect to be God's craftsman. It just takes belonging to Jesus, staying close to him through the word, through prayer, through worship, We believe as Reformed Christians that in God's strength, we can scatter the powers of darkness as his craftsmen wherever we are and in whatever we do. We believe God needs his craftsmen in the home raising children, in office buildings in the city of Chicago, driving trucks, doing Numbers stuff, finance stuff, on the police force, in the military, in the classroom. In each of these places and many more, we give Jesus all that we have to say in the face of the insurgency, no, this is my Father's world. So that our creativity, our work, our talents, our time are all being given as unto him and for his honor and glory. We know God's mission will succeed. We see signs of his kingdom everywhere, even in the face of the insurgency. Certainly, we see it in in many places and churches and ministries around the world. You know what? We're seeing it right here at home, too. In our boys who are on a camp out this weekend, being mentored to become godly men. In our girls Thursday night, serving us 
at the spaghetti dinner, helping us praise Jesus in worship here afterwards. It's seen in our faithful gathering Sunday by Sunday and our faithful giving to the church and kingdom causes. It's seen in precious families from our church this past week, this coming week, gathering quietly around gravesides, seeing a casket go down, saying goodbye to loved ones, yet confessing, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. None of these things are big or spectacular by worldly standards. But then, you know, God's kingdom and his true church rarely has been spectacular by the world standards. But rest assured, this is where it's at. What we're doing right here. As we diligently work day by day as God's craftsmen in the church, here in our world, we know that God has come in Jesus to win the victory and that the day is coming when he'll return on the clouds. He'll scatter the enemy once and for all. He'll gather all who have called on his name to be with him forever. Friends, you can be certain A global spiritual battle is going on today. And it's not just global out there. It's among us too, around us too. You can also be certain that God is defeating and will defeat the enemy. And he did in principle on the cross already. And you can also be certain that by belonging to Jesus, you are on the winning side. And so you can live your life as a craftsman a craftswoman for God, proclaiming to others with your actions, with your words, this is my Father's world. And he will have the victory, and he does in Jesus. And I'm with him, and he's with me. Amen.